Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the Digital Markets Act and the challenges ahead, with a particular focus on choice screens. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. This episode is powered by Google, and it's about the Consumer Digital Empowerment Index, supported by Google and newer consumers. The new study reveals that staying in touch is crucial. Using messaging tools or email to communicate is the most empowering service in the research. Discover more insights on cep-project.org index. Today I'm joined by Alexandre Destriel, Academic Director at the Think Tank CER, and Amelia Fletcher, Professor of Competition Policy at the University of East Anglia, and also Research Fellow at CER. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. So uh, CER has recently launched a series of studies on the Digital Markets Act, the DMA, uh, landmark uh, legislation from the EU uh, targeting uh, gatekeepers, uh, meaning uh, very large, meaning um, big tech companies that have uh, particular influence on certain uh, key digital markets. Alexandra, can you tell us more about uh, the the reasoning behind these initiatives? What kind of topics you're covering uh, and why? Yes, sure. So our, our starting point was um, that the DMA is a very important and, and good piece of legislation, but that it will be very complicated to enforce because it needs to be enforced again firms which are global, which are very powerful, which are also very innovative and therefore complex. And so what we were, and, and we don't think that self-execution is uh, really possible for many of the obligations which are um, in the DMA. And so what we wanted to do is to see what are the, the kind of difficulty that we can see and how, and how they can be solved to have, and that's really our goal, an implementation of the DMA, which is effective and proportionate. And so to do that, and in the spirit of the SARE approach, uh, which is uh, very participatory, we put around the same table um, some academics from the SARE network, uh, but also um, the member of SARE, and, and the member of SARE are composed of some big tech, so um, future gatekeeper, but also some small tech, so um, the business user of the, the gatekeeper, and the National Regulatory Authority. We've also the commission, which was more in a listening mode, to try to unpack um, the, the, the problem of some obligation and, and come with some recommendation in terms of interpreting those um, obligations and also in terms of a mechanism which can be put in place, implementation mechanism which needs to be put in place uh, by the gatekeeper, again, to ensure that um, the enforcement is um, at the same time effective and proportionate. And Amelia, uh, the study you have conducted on uh, switching tools and choice screening is a case in point here. So what were your main findings? So my focus was on two provisions of the DMA, both of which are concerned with the issue of default settings. So there's Article 6.3, which is designed to enable end users to easily change their default settings on an operating system, virtual assistant or browser. 
Um, and that provision also requires gatekeepers to prompt end users at the time of their first use of an operating system, virtual assistant or browser to choose their preferred search engine, virtual assistant and browser. Um, and then there's Article 6.4, which is designed to enable third-party downloaded apps to prompt users to choose those apps as their default setting and to do that easily. So um, those provisions, we think, are really important because a key concern of the Commission, including in the um, Google Android case uh, that DG Comp took, um, has been that gatekeepers are able to use default settings to leverage their market position from one service into another. So, for example, if you buy a phone with a particular gatekeeper's operating system, uh, then it comes with or it has come with that gatekeeper's browser and that gatekeeper's virtual assistant as the default settings. And then we know that the vast majority of users will never change that default setting, which means that the gatekeeper is left in a very strong position in these related services too. And there's plenty of evidence of this kind of um, status quo bias amongst end users, the, the, the bias of end users towards just sticking with the status quo that they have in place. Um, so these provisions are potentially very useful and very well targeted at what is a clear identified concern. And my study was partly focused on highlighting aspects of these two provisions that might not have been fully recognised. So, for example, it seems likely that the easy switching rules don't just apply to search engines, voice assistants and browsers, but also to other default services such as email services or the calendar app that you use. So when you go on a browser and you click mail to or you click to put something in your calendar, you should be able to make a particular app your default. And it also seems likely that some apps that we might think of as search apps actually also fulfill the criteria for being browsers and therefore they should be um, options for your default browser as well as for your default search engine. But what I also identified was a number of areas where there was just a, a genuine lack of clarity around the coverage of the rules as well as some risks around effectiveness and unintended consequences. And the biggest issue around a lack of clarity was whether the rules apply to situations where the default option provided by the gatekeeper is actually not their own proprietary service, but rather a service that's provided under contract by a third party, but where still, you know, the, the, the end user doesn't have a choice about that default setting. Um, so there's a big question there about exactly what is covered um, uh, under the rules in terms of that contracted provision. And there's also a question around what easy switching, the rules require easy switching, but what does easy really comprise? So if you think about um, a mobile device, um, if you're going to use a search engine, you can access that search engine a whole variety of ways via your browser, via your search assistant, via a search app, via a widget on your home screen. And the question is, is it really easy for end users 
to switch their search engine, if they have to switch it in every single one of those places separately, or does the requirement for easy mean that it should be possible to switch all of them at once? So those are the sorts of questions um, that we were kind of teasing out in the paper. Uh, thanks, Amelia. And I think we will dig uh, further into that in a minute. But uh, I think this really shows how the DMA is a sort of unexplored territory for, for everyone and, and for the Commission in particular. So, uh, Alexandra, having this uh, overview uh, with these studies, uh, what are the main challenges and, and potential pitfalls for, for the Commission, which uh, for the first time will act as a regulator? Uh, yeah, and so um, we could note here the, the irony to some extent, because as you say, I mean, for the first time of its history, um, the Commission will become a fully-fledged regulator, and that is thanks to U.S. big tech. So so there is a form of an irony there. But um, now, in terms of challenge and, and pitfall, I think um, I, I'd see... Um, four challenges that the Commission should face. One is, and, and it's probably the most important one, is to understand very well the technology and the business model of the gatekeeper. And those business models and the way to make money is very different from one gatekeeper to another. So I think it's very important that the Commission has in mind. And, and it's not because you are one gatekeeper that you are the same. You know, um, the, the second thing is, um, I think this, this law, and I think our report shows that, will only be really um, effectively enforced if it is done in a participatory manner. So that means um, to involve in the system uh, the gatekeeper themselves. And this is why the compliance report that they will um, have to adopt it uh, um, in 2020, uh, 2024 will be very key. And also the compliance function, so the compliance officer that they need to, to set up will be absolutely key and probably the best allies of the commission within the firm. Um, second um, is the role of business user. Um, they will be very important in uh, first helping uh, the commission in specifying uh, some of the obligation and, and in designing a good, uh, a good remedy. And also, uh, if um, an obligation is not uh, respected, uh, it, it, they can complain uh, to the Commission or to uh, the National Regulatory Authority. And therefore, I think, um, we think, um, uh, as the group uh, in SER, that um, the National Authority will have a very important role to play. I mean, of course, it's the Commission which is the ultimate enforcer of the law, as you say, but um, the National Authority are there to help, to support the Commission, First, maybe in um, uh, hearing those complaints, because, you know, the gatekeepers are global, but many of their business users are local. And so it's probably easier for them to complain uh, before a national authority than uh, at the commission. And also uh, to um, investigate. And, and maybe we can uh, here uh, look at what is happening in financial uh, supervision, where 10 years ago, I mean, the biggest bank uh, have been now supervised since 10 years by the ECB, uh, by the European Central Bank, but with um, the help of the national uh, supervisor. And, and they established a joint investigation team, so between the staff of the national authority and the staff of the ECB, uh, to do the work. The um, Third challenge is experimentation, you know, and um, I like very much the um, advice of the OECD in its recent uh, recommendation on agile regulatory governance, where um, the OECD mentioned very well that uh, now the regulators 
uh, should move from a regulate and forget approach to a learn and adapt approach. And I, I, re I think really that's what is needed here. So for instance, you know, um, the commission could ask uh, the uh, gatekeeper to do A-B testing on, on different form of remedy or different form of obligation specification, report that to the commission and according to uh, that um, testing or those different testing, the commission could decide which is the best specification. And then the four challenges um, and the last one is um, to use big data and AI technique to help regulation. You know, here again, I think we can look at what is happening in financial regulation and financial regulator are innovating a lot uh, with those uh, what's called the subtech technologies, supervisory uh, technology, which is basically using big data and AI uh, to improve um, to improve supervision. So I think, uh, you know, uh, we have some example elsewhere, in particular in financial regulation, from which uh, the Commission could learn a lot. In terms of pitfall, I think there are two big um, things to look at uh, and, and alleviate it. First is to have a kind of bureaucratic culture and tick the box approach, you know. This is really what we don't need. We really need an agile approach. And in a way, I think um, the Commission should become, an, and it's a cultural revolution for the Commission, um, um, you know, should, should, should develop a kind of a geek culture within the commission. You know, I think that's very important. And the second, uh, I think, pitfall we should um, be aware of is that the DMA uh, become a kind of rent-seeking exercise by the existing business user. This is not what the DMA is, and this is not what the DMA should be. Um, I think the DMA really needs to promote competition, needs to shake the market, and ultimately to increase um, the degree and the di diversity of innovation in Europe. It should not be um, a, a, um, a law which consolidates, in a way, the position of um, the uh, existing gatekeeper and just distribute the rent differently. Yeah, so I, I think uh, the recommendations Alexandre just set out, uh, uh, it would be very good to see them, how they apply in practice to a specific case. So, Amelia, you mentioned uh, the fact that uh, we need to define what, what it means to be uh, easy switching, so how, how this choice screen would look like. You mentioned that there is uncertainty about how these... Um, provisions would apply in practice. So who, who would be the ultimate, um, who would be making these decisions? Is it the business users? Is it uh, together with the commission? What, what sort of roles do you see for the gatekeepers and the competitors uh, to agree on, on these terms? And to what extent can, can there be collaboration and to what extent there would be litigation? So I think it's going to be down to um, a combination of the commission and the compliance officers within the parties and the gatekeepers and uh, business users all kind of putting in their input uh, to try and to try and make all of this work. In terms of um, effectiveness of the actual uh, switching tools that I was particularly focusing on. Um, one of the things that I highlight is that the rules should act to limit the ability of gatekeepers to use behavioural techniques such as prompts um, to either inhibit switching 
or induce switching back because actually there's a, a lot um, in these rules that you could try and um, uh, circumvent essentially if you uh, by doing things that are outside the rules there are specific anti-circumvention uh, measures within the DMA and I think those should be sufficient to um, in limit some of some of that behavior um, and therefore help the provisions to be more effective but I think um, in this particular space a really interesting issue and this is where the AB testing that uh, Alexandra mentioned will come in is the choice architecture or interface design that end users see so for example um, I mean a couple of things I think are fairly straightforward. I suggest that um, payment by third parties for inclusion or prominence in the list of options for of default settings wouldn't actually be in line with these provisions or indeed other provisions in the DMA. So it shouldn't be that you can pay to get included in the list or to be top of the list. Um, I also suggest that the requirements to provide an upfront choice box at first use is not quite clear what first use means, um, but that should, I argue, include every time a user initiates a new device and not just their very first use of a particular gatekeeper's operating system, because otherwise that provision is really unlikely to have much effect because we know that in end users, they choose new phones relatively frequently, but they very rarely switch the entire ecosystem. And so if you only had this provision occurring, this choice box occurring, when you switch ecosystem, it just wouldn't appear very often and wouldn't have very much effect. So those are two things where I think one could reach an interpretation. Um, there's a lot less clarity around a variety of other issues like how many options should users see when they're making these choices if there's too many options is there a risk of choice overload and end users making poor decisions or um or being most likely to just choose the one that they recognize which might be the biggest name and therefore not really promoting competition um how should those options be ordered and framed um again if you put what's currently the most popular service, which will typically be the proprietary gatekeeper one, top of the list, then we know that end users also tend to exhibit ranking bias. So they will go for the top of a list. And that, again, that might not lead to the kind of change in the market that we're seeking. And so this leads to a whole bunch of questions about how gatekeepers go about demonstrating that their choices in terms of their interface design are really meeting the requirement for effectiveness. And that's where the sorts of A-B testing um, come in. In terms of unintended consequences of the DMA, one of the ones that I highlight is the risk that downloaded third-party apps could use their, their new right to prompt users to set them as a default in a misleading or a fraudulent way so that users find that they've switched to what is an unsuitable 
service. Um, in telecoms, this was an issue when switching was made too easy and it was called slamming. People would suddenly find they were on a new telecoms provider. That isn't, that's good for competition of a sort, but it's not the sort of competition we actually want to see emerging. We want to see the see competition to deliver better services, not just competition to make people switch in an un, inadvertently. We also um, highlight that this issue, this right to issue prompts, if it's used too freely, so if as an end user, you're just getting prompts all the time on your phone saying, do you want to set this as an end, uh, as a default setting? Do you want to set this as an, a default setting? You could end up with end users getting choice fatigue, a bit like we have when we go online these days and constantly are getting consent boxes popping up for, um, for every website we go to. We know that online, we just now always click accept, um, just to get rid of the thing and, and get on with our lives. If we end up with these prompts, creating a similar environment on people's devices, again, that's not going to be a good outcome because what this is about is trying to encourage end users to make reasoned, active decisions. Indeed, I, I think uh, very few people can... Uh look at the cookie banners are as a successful example of a user-friendly uh, design. Um, but Alexandra, you, you sort of uh, set the path for what the commission should and shouldn't do uh, in terms of implementing the DMA. Uh, but we have already seen uh, some sort of movement in this direction, uh, reorganization inside DigiConnect and DigiCom. Uh, we had the, last week, we had the first uh, workshop uh, with one of the potential gatekeepers, uh, Google, engaging with business users, perhaps for the first time publicly. Uh, we saw the commission publishing, uh, implementing acts on Friday. So uh, to what extent do you see these early moves uh, as following um, the path that you have uh, outlined before? Yes. So first, let me say about the, the reorganization of the commission. You know, many people seem to focus on the number of people. And I don't think that it's the main thing. Of course, the number of people is key. But to some extent, you know, you will never have enough people at the commission. And so I think what is more important um, than the number of people is the process, to get the process right. And this is why this issue of participation, experimentation and use of um, big data and AI technique is to me at least as important than the number of people. And I think they are um, insufficiently discussed um, in Brussels. But um, having said that, on, the, on your two points about the workshop, and the workshop is maybe an example of participatory regulation, I think it's an interesting exercise for openness and transparency. But I think we should alleviate that it end up to be a rent-seeking exercise. And I think that's, you know, the fine line that um, the Commission uh, should uh, should have. And, you know, um, be behind um, that issue is that we have, I mean, the responsibility of compliance is, is clearly on the gatekeeper. Um, and so they have to find a way to comply. But on the other hand, I don't think that that means that the Commission could sit and relax and just wait for the compliance report um, that the gatekeeper uh, should produce uh, in March 2024. I think the Commission, to some extent, should steer the process. And in a way, in particular, for instance, for access obligation, I think, you know, you will always have a kind of disagreement 
it's inevitable. You know, in every access regime that we have seen in the past, being in telecom or in other sectors, you always have some disagreement. And at some point, you know, the regulator should jump in and says, okay, that's what you need to do. You know, so I think at some point, you know, um, the commission should uh, sortir du bois, as we say in French. And and says um, uh, where really um, uh, we have to we have to go on implementing regulation um, the draft implementing uh, regulation which uh, is now up for consultation um, I think it's a very good starting point um, I think the the three let's say um, issue that are um, dealt by the commission which is notification which is the risk of information overload and due process are absolutely key and in particular in due process. We see that um, the court, um, the court of justice, is more and more uh, strict uh, in antitrust, and I guess um, the same will happen here. So I think it's very important that the due process is is um, respected. There is one thing, however, which is missing. I'm not sure it should be in the implementing regulation, but I think um, the Commission should give clarity, and that is on compliance report. I think compliance report is an extremely extremely important tool in. Uh, the, um, for an effective and proportionate implementation um, of the DMA. And in the report that we have just produced at SER, uh, we say that um, this compliance report should at least contain three things. One is uh, what has changed in the product of the gatekeeper. Second is why the gatekeeper have changed that. And third, to have um, a number of quantitative indicators on which you could assess DMA compliance and DMA success. Now, of course, those indicators could not be uh, everything, but we think that um, to to try to uh, frame the debates, uh, we need some form of quantitative indicator attached to each obligation on which you can have an objective discussion. No, I'm not sure that um, those indications that what you should have in the compliance report should be in the implementing regulation. Maybe they should be in some guidance of the commission because then they are more flexible uh, to adapt as we learn in the process. But I think the commission should give uh, some uh, clear indication on what uh, needs to be in those compliance reports. And uh, from a political point of view, I mean, yeah, the, the Commission uh, will probably want to show that the DMA is an effective tool uh, ahead of the European elections in 2024. So I think there will be a sort of competition among the different provisions, which one uh, should be picked uh, first to, to sort of show how impact, but also that uh, this was uh, easily implemented. So, for example, uh, if we look at the interoperability of messaging services, perhaps uh, it's the it's the part that has most impact on people's lives, but is also highly technical. So it might take some time to um, to implement. Do you do you think that choice screens would be um, uh, a battle uh, that the Commission should pick in this context. So I think, I mean, it's it's a battle they have picked, uh, but I think it could be a quicker and an easier win in one sense, which is I think that it's relatively easy for the gatekeepers to meet the obligations um, and to show that they are, um, you know, that's all in place and ready to have an effect. I would just highlight and caution that we shouldn't 
necessarily set expectations too high for those these provisions to have had a real effect on contestability by 2024 um you know i think it's it's really important that end users should be able to switch their default settings and i think it's a really important necessary condition for contestability uh, but we do know that many end users will initially uh, continue to just choose the proprietary services that they're used to. So I think it's going to take time for the lesser known services, the more innovative services, both to emerge and to start to make a real impact in the market. So I think even here, even for these provisions, we shouldn't necessarily expect immediate results in terms of seeing uh, the exciting new innovative disruption that the DMA is all about. Basically, the DMA is about providing a framework for contestability within which we should start to see that more innovative disruption. Um, and, but I, and I don't think we should think the DMA has been a failure if we don't see that emerging immediately, so long as we see the framework being put in place fairly, fairly quickly. Amelia Fletcher is Professor of Competition Policy at the University of East Anglia and Research Fellow at CER. Alexander Estriel is Academic Director at CER. Thank you both. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Curie. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. <laughs>